Well, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, whatever it is for you. Welcome to our last tape session of this semester's church history class. We're going to be talking about some very important figures. We have titled this entire class the Standing Dwarf, Standing on the Shoulders of Giants, and we're going to think about some true giants today. So we're going to be looking at approximately a 400-year period. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then, Neil, uh, you can take it away. Father, once again, we recognize our debt to these men and women who have given us so much uh, by following not only their beliefs, but their biblically-based beliefs. We thank you for the stand for the Word of God that men that we will talk about today took, cost them their lives. Thank you for all that we have because of our heritage and all that we have we know is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we ask that you would guide our time and our thoughts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm really excited um, not only to bring this semester to its culmination, but about these um, men and the era that we're in today. Uh, we're looking at the, the forerunners of the Reformation or, or pre-reformers, we might say, that they were Protestant and Reformed before Luther and Calvin were. Uh, so it's a really interesting time period. Uh, these are interesting individuals that had a lot of complexities between education and theology and politics it's all mixed together uh, but what, what we want to do first is just spend a few minutes setting the stage um, historically and what thoughts were coming into play when when these men came onto the scene since they do span about a 400 year period the uh the the popes and the the, the church leaders didn't do themselves a lot of favors uh, did they in the ways that they moved the church certainly not they as they grew in power they also grew in corruption and with that corruption came vying for more power and whenever that comes onto the scene there's going to be um, distrust of, of one another there's going to be power grabbing and eventually we actually saw schism within the western roman church uh, that created a time where there was two and at one point there was actually three different popes uh, all vying for, for power over one another. And, um, you know, you had talked before about the Middle Ages being dark ages. And even when we were in our class previously, we, we mentioned that the dark ages did not have a lot of theological development. That's not completely true, is it? No. Uh, Anselm, as we saw, one of the most important thinkers in church history. In fact, uh, my church history professor puts him right uh, in that top tier, maybe in the top ten theologians of all time because of what he gave us. Uh, we're going to see some men, we're going to talk about some men today who develop theology because of their rejection hmm. of the of the church doctrine. We've been talking about the slide, uh, what we consider the slide to beliefs about uh, penance and transubstantiation uh, c communion, the, the, who is authorized to uh, lead in communion and who is even authorized to receive communion. Mm. So, 
the development is as much a reaction against, and it and it sets the stage for enormous, tremendous theological development in the Reformation. So there was a, a growing unrest with um, with the people um, being able to rely on the church. They they couldn't rely as as much or as well as they wanted to because they saw the leaders as corrupt. Uh, and what contributed to some of that corruption? Well, there is centuries worth of layers of complexity um, building on one another, one of those being theological or doctrinal. We, any doctrines that we saw developed during, during that time was more out of speculation and tradition rather than being biblically based. And then um, there was there were practices uh, known as simony, and it gets that name from Simon, who's actually mentioned in the book of Acts. And what simony is, um, where a person, it could be anybody of means, anybody with wealth, could purchase a clerical position, an ecclesiastical um, title. They could become bishop or priest over a certain area if they paid the, the politician, the reigning governor or, or king of that area, uh, paid them enough money, then the state politician could give this third-party person a church position, and that's known as simony. And that uh, brought about great political power. Anybody could buy their their position. Yes, uh, thankfully that never happens today. <laughs> Not at all. Wherever you have people, you have politics. I mean, mm-hmm. so there's a certain amount of give and take that is always necessary. It's within every organization. Uh, but whether that is spirit-controlled or not, interesting right. that Simony, named after Simon the magician, who sought to to purchase the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm. And in, in essence, that's what these men were doing. They wanted the power of the Holy Spirit behind their political ploys. And, and what Peter told Simon is, you and your money be condemned because of what Simon tried to do. And this is what eventually took shape during this this period of the, the waning Middle Ages, is that that the people recognized that the church needed reform, mm-hmm. and we're talking all the way back into the the 11th century here. But why did it take so long? What were the elements involved? And that's what we want to get into now. We're going to see going all the way back into I believe it's the um, uh, the 12th century. Uh, the 1100s, where uh, Peter Waldo is going to come onto the scene. So he's around the same time as Francis of Assisi, uh, who was also a monastic reformer. And we're going to move all the way up to right before the Reformation kicks off, as as we would put it on our calendars, just before Luther. So we're going to look at the, the 16th or 15th century uh, and the development that scholasticism gave way to. Before we talk about that, I think maybe just want to mention uh, in your notes, Neil, uh, you have rightly put in uh, for us to talk about the debauchery of the uh, mm. uh, of the priesthood. And you know, not only was there theological, uh, it, political corruption, theological aberration that, or 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 movement in the wrong direction, there was also moral decay, and it has to. You have to. Acknowledge that at least some of the debauchery, the the immorality within the priesthood, was the result of the uh, of the uh, of, of the inability of the priest to marry, and mm. so they 
just did what people do in spite of their vows of celibacy. Um, and, and so, and I think a lot of people began to recognize, look, we're, we're making it difficult for these priests to live the moral lives. Mm-hmm. God has designed a way for us to be moral. Uh, but we, of course, that doesn't keep men and women from uh, immorality today. Marriage does not. But it certainly doesn't help when you say you can never be married and you have these physical urges that, that these men just sought to me. And, and, and women as well. Yeah, and there are teachings and consequences that we're living with today. That's exactly right. <laughs> because one area of immorality just seems to move into another. So let's talk about, a little bit about the, the reaction to that. Certainly. Um, there was almost a, a two-pronged Attack, you might say, but um, but it took two different forms, is what we want to get at. There was a moral reform of the church, and we'll look at uh, one individual from, I believe he's uh, from Italy, uh, who is on the later portion of this 400-year era that we're going to look at, and he was very um, passionate about the moral reform of the church, talking about uh, doing away with the debauchery within the the clergy and and all that. Uh, takes place even with the politicians. But then there was another side, too, that not only recognized the moral need, but also the doctrinal need that the church had strayed away from biblical doctrine, and they wanted to recover um, that original orthodoxy. And uh, that starts early on. I mean, we we talked before in the earlier Middle Ages about um, Gottschalk and others who have tried to retain a bit of that the doctrinal purity of the early church. And here we're going to look at, uh, starting in the 12th century, uh, some of those movements again taking shape. Yes, uh, one man in particular we want to look at first, Peter Waldo, um, an amazing uh, man in, in his time, in his place. Uh, he took Christ's word seriously hmm. about following him. He was a very wealthy man, sold all that he had, and so followed Jesus. Um, and there were not many copies of Scripture available. Uh, the, the French Bible had been translated into French uh, back in 1066, and Peter Waldo uh, bought a number of copies mm. in French and then gave them to people doing missionary work. Now, the, the, the Catholics didn't appreciate this. By the way, uh, Waldo's... Followers were known as Waldensians. We we still have those guys around today. It's fascinating. We're going to take a look at how they confronted the church and what the church did to them, and then the fact that they're still in existence is is a testimony to God's preservation. It's amazing. What what would you think, um, Neil, if someone came to the leaders of Grace Community Church and they said, "Well, you know what." Someone is doing missionary work, and they're giving people the Bible in their own language. What do you think we would say? Oh, no. (laughs) Well, that's what the Roman Catholic (laughs) Church said. I mean, they've actually forbade uh, Waldo and his followers to give out the scriptures in the, in their, in the common tongue. That's amazing to me. I mean, you see, through centuries, we've seen a slow turning away from the gospel and biblical orthodoxy. But then 
boom, it's, it's points like this that you see the clear distance that the church, it's almost a flip-flop. Um, the, the established church was now the enemy of the gospel. That They didn't even want the Word of God spread among the people. And, and it's amazing, too, that um, as early as the 11th century, the French had the Bible translated into their own language. Yes, it is. Um, let's think about some of the things that Waldo reacted against. By the way, when the Catholic Church uh, ordered Waldo and his followers to desist, they refused to obey the church. They thought, well, because they were so familiar with Scripture, they yeah. saw what happened when the religious leaders uh, forbade uh, Peter and John and the, the apostles from, mm-hmm. so they just said, well, too bad. We have to obey God rather than man. But let's think about some of the things that Waldo rejected that was, uh, that were doctrines of the, of the Catholic Church. And then we'll think about some of the things that he actually did. Uh, although at this point, transubstantiation had not yet been, um, formalized. I believe that came in the Fourth Lateran Council probably less than a hundred years. Yes, it was still very much uh, in vogue. But it was, yeah, it was entrenched already in the tradition of the the accepted tradition of the church, and that was one area that uh, the Waldensians could not uh, handle. They they said no, transubstantiation is not true. It's wrong. We're we're not going to do it. And Christ uh, said, "It is finished. The sacrifice was done. No more need for sacrifice. No." No, in the mass. Uh, and, and, of course, papal excesses. So this is where the doctrinal meets the moral. So any time where they saw the uh, papists, whether it's the pope or the clergy, um, getting rich off of the peasants or preaching in, in a language that the peasants didn't understand, that they weren't given the gospel, all these lifestyle uh, changes that they, they saw in the, the papists they needed to uh, change for themselves, and they, they were calling uh, people to reform. So what were other doctrinal reforms? Well, uh, the, the Waldo rejected purgatory. I think this one is particularly interesting. He rejected relics. You know, Some 500 years earlier, four, 500 years earlier, John of Damascus had said that relics are for the illiterate what the written word is to those who can read, to the literate, to the educated. Well, Waldo said every we shouldn't have illiteracy. He wanted to encourage people to be able to read and to be able to read the scriptures in their own language because the worship, the veneration of relics, the worship of relics had become a, a, a great problem in the Catholic Church. And he said, this is just wrong. It's idolatry. It's it's this is not helping people. It's hurting. It's 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 doing great damage to their souls. They're looking at things rather than Jesus. It so, became a replacement for relying on the authority of Scripture. Yes. Uh, and, and that led to one of the mainstays of, of Waldensian um, doctrine is that there should be preaching. There should be laymen preaching to one another. Not everyone is going to be literate, but whenever they um, handed out Scripture and went on their missions of evangelism, they said we should preach to the people the Word of God in a language that they can understand, which was not done in the church at this time, was it? No, it was not. Uh, and and one of the reasons that um, 
Waldo so wanted the people to have the scriptures is because he believed in the priesthood of the believer. This is going to be a, a, a huge um, shift in mm-hmm. in the church's thinking when Luther comes along and the and the reformers. Uh, and, and in fact, this is one of the amazing things. Some four hundred years before the Reformation, Peter Waldo is, for all intents and purposes, a Protestant. Yeah, it, it's amazing to see that it does take four hundred years. I mean, here is a voice with a following. I mean, he, he Peter Waldo, I think. <clears throat> comes into a sentiment that's already in existence and he doesn't ruffle the feathers immediately of politicians but what he does is evangelize the people and it's the the people who um, come around the, this uh, movement and accept its teachings that starts to get under the skin of of the popes and and what they want to do is squash this and we'll see time and again where movements like this are squashed until God's hand on history could not be stayed, and it, it, the the dam will, will burst forth. Um, but some of the, I mean, you got to look at the position of the church here over centuries. Latin had fallen out of common use of people, yes, and it was only used by the clergy, yes. So when I when I think about the position the Waldensians were in, and we'll look later at. Uh, Wycliffe and those in England and uh, Bohemia as well. I can't help but think about in Revelation where it talks about God's judgment on the Nicolaitans, those people who were against the laity. And here the church has set itself up early on from a false dichotomy uh, between the spiritual clergy and then all the other people. Yes. And that rift had just grown over the ages. And there is enormous power that's invested in those who can read mm-hmm. the Latin. And uh, you listen, you think sermons in English are boring. Can you imagine just sitting and listening to a priest in a monotone voice give the homily, just a very brief account of the word in Latin, a language that no one knows. No wonder the the, the table becomes so important, especially with transubstantiation the priest raises the 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 bread he raises the glass and says hocus the latin for this is this is my body this is my blood so that the 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 bread and the wine are magically transformed into the body and so these illiterate people who haven't understood anything else they get hocus and as i believe we've mentioned before becomes hocus pocus you know it's like all oh, magic all of a sudden so there's this enormous authority invested in the church leadership because nobody can understand what they're saying. But they say, you better listen to us or yeah. you will suffer eternal damnation. Your soul is in jeopardy if you don't follow. Well, people like Waldo come along and they say, no, 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 no. So here are some, here are some things that, that, that Waldo and his followers believe, which by the way, his followers went into hiding. Uh, and stayed in hiding until the Reformation, and then yeah. they joined. Yeah. So that's harshly 400 years. Yeah. Harshly persecuted. They accepted the Bible as the final authority, which means that they rejected the authority of the Pope. Well, right off the bat, they're, <laughs> they're, they're in trouble. That's probably the one that got them into trouble. <laughs> yes, and everything else flowed from there. Uh, so it's not surprising that they believed in missionary work and, and, and sharing the gospel with all and and that 
leads us to say, well, but if you're going to do that, it has to be shared in a language that they can understand. And they embraced a life of simplicity and communal living. Even though these men and women were persecuted to death, they understood that the gospel would endure. They recognized that though I give my life, the word of God will go on. We're, we're not faced with those kinds of concerns, mm. not, not in our country. Our brothers and sisters around the world recognize this. I'm, I love the fact that um, Waldo's call to poverty was was voluntary for the community. That uh, he may have learned from earlier, say, monastics, who would would say, "If you're going to be this, you've got to give up this and that and everything else." But here we see the community coming around the teaching of God's word, and they voluntarily live together, supporting one another, and it didn't have to become a steadfast rule, because they understood that books, at this time it was before the printing press, had to be handwritten, hand-copied. That's right. They were not cheap. No, and so for Waldo to purchase a number of copies of Scripture, he clearly came from money, mm. and yet eventually gave it all up and for, for the cause of Christ. And I think so many times we, we react to the abuses of those kinds of uh, impulses and and desires that that man had, because we see so much of the uh, of the negative doctrinal uh, positions that they took that we we just tend to associate this desire mm. to live simply mm. and to use their money for the furtherance of the gospel, which oftentimes meant to, to helping the poor. Mm-hmm. So consequently, we sort of lump it all together and say, oh, you're committed to, to, to simplicity, uh, to poverty even, then we're against you. But Waldo was a good man and stood firmly against the church. But Waldo, along with everyone else, it's not that they wanted to break with the church. The church broke with, with yeah. them. They tried to reform from within. Uh, you might say it's a grassroots effort going to the people, but then uh, the, the leadership of the church couldn't stand it uh, because it was undercutting the Pope's authority, his power. And so they were heavily persecuted and they retreated from, uh, I believe they were in, started in France and they retreated to the valleys and the hills of um, that border with Germany. And um, there they would stay in seclusion until... Hundreds of years later, when reformers would then spread the word that hey, there are others who have protested the church and and have survived. It is uh, it, it, there's an odd connection with many of us today in these reformers. It's a it's a it, you might say, well, that's a strange connection. But I remember when I trusted Christ, I didn't. One of the objections that I had to trusting Christ is that I would have to give up my friends. I, I didn't. They gave me up. Mm. And that was okay. Mm. You know, and I know that the consequences for these reformers who lived before the Reformation and even after the Reformation I have paid much more severely than I, I paid. We get the idea that when the closer you are to Christ, uh, the more you're going to be from established anything. Um, established religion, not the established church, but the church. We constantly have to be 
making ourselves accountable to one another and like-minded mm. believers so that we do not go down this road and that we don't invest too much power in any individual, but that we collectively and corporately recognize God's truth to us through His Scripture. Well, in total, when we look at the Waldensian movement, I love it because it is 400 years prior to the Reformation, but we can look at it and it mirrors very similarly to churches that we would attend today. Their belief it system really does. is very reformed. Uh, the only thing that I could find that differed a little bit was that they were Sabbatarian in the effect that they uh, ref- they worshipped on Saturday, uh, thinking that Sunday was some sort of papal decree. It was a rule that the Pope came up with. And what I love also about that is that they recognized it was a secondary matter. Because when the, the missionaries from the Reformation came to them, they said, you know what, you guys believe the same doctrines that we do. We're not tied to worshiping on Saturday. We, we recognize truth when we see it, and we're going to worship with you. So when we look at Peter Waldo, um, a great start to the forerunners of the Reformation, um, both meeting the, the moral excesses of the church of the day as well as uh, standing against the abuses of, of doctrine as well. So next, unless you had anything else that you wanted to add to nope. Waldo, we're going to move on to um, the other bookend of this time period, uh, Savonarola. Giralmo, I think, is his first name, Savonarola. And um, we've got to be sure... To set it, set it in place here, not only chronologically are Waldo and Savonarola the bookends, but um, they represent each of the two forms that the Re- Reformation took in these early days, that Waldo addressed doctrinal issues with the church, and Savonarola is more going to address the moral issue rather than uh, any church teachings. Yes, Waldo addressed the moral issues, but his primary concern was theolo- theology because he recognized the morality would follow the theology. Right. Uh, Savonarola was, uh, if I've said that correctly, uh, didn't care so much about proper theology. He just saw the, the moral corruption. He was, by the way, from Ital- Italy, as you mentioned earlier, and there weren't many theological reformers <laughs> In Italy, that close to the Pope, mm-hmm. and the thing that's interesting about this gentleman is that he was had a rather abrasive, abrasive personality, as did Martin Luther, you know, later, and he also had a very uh, difficult voice. It was a grating <laughs> voice, so uh, so we're told, and so he would preach, and people didn't necessarily. He would preach against the corruption in the church, and at first they kind of like, well, who is that? But then they appreciated his boldness, and so they came in massive numbers and listened to him. And again, this hmm. sort of set the stage for the Reformation in, in its own way. Yeah, and, and again, as a local voice, he became a loud voice for the pre-Reformers um, because of the people. Uh, he addressed the excesses again of the clergy, and the people loved him for it, and they loved him so much that they wanted to make him the, the mayor, so to speak, of, of Florence at that time, which again was terrible because 
he not only preached morality, but he forced a specific kind of morality on everyone within uh, under his authority. So as quickly as he gained support by the people, he <laughs> lost it. And yeah, they loved it when he was attacking Rome. They didn't appreciate it when he was attacking their practice, their personal practices. Stepping on uh, his own, their own toes. That's right. They don't like that. Uh, so uh, again, there were some more political maneuvering. I don't know that he ever aimed specifically for political power, but um, he came to that position. He and, did. Um, and he paid a, a, a steep price did. for his insistence on morality. He made enemies both in the church and the state, and when you do that, you're probably not going to survive yes. for long. No, no, and in fact, they persecuted him. Well, they excommunicated him, tortured him, and ultimately, I believe, burned at the stake. Uh, most of these guys were that we're talking about right. burned at the stake, which would be an awful way to go. Mm-hmm. But uh, and and t- what's really sad about Savonarola is that we don't know that he was a believer. Uh, He wasn't as concerned about theology as he was um, morality. So that is a tough question. It's not our place to judge, but uh, God has put them in our path to look at the fruits, to see what has come of it, and uh, see how God's sovereign hand is continuing to move, which we'll do in just a moment. When we come back, we're going to look at John Wycliffe, and uh, and Hus or Hus, as we'll see, and we'll see how the other uh, forerunners of the Reformation made their impact. Welcome back to our final session of this year in the church history class, and our final filming session. We're going to talk about two extremely important individuals in the life of the church: uh, John Wycliffe and John Hus. I say hus, you say hus, tomato, tomato. Yeah, I guess it depends on where you're from and what you're trying to get across, but uh, I think the enunciation from his homeland, hus, uh, can remind us of something that we'll, we'll look at a little bit later about his legacy that, that he'll leave. And we'll get into that in just a few minutes, so I'll, I'll leave you drooling on that. Wycliffe, John Wycliffe is a name that we know. Uh, Wycliffe Bible Translators. Uh, why uh, is a group of Bible translators named after John Wycliffe? Yeah, Wycliffe's legacy is still with us. Uh, it's because you know we have the Wycliffe Bible Translators because if you can imagine, Wycliffe wanted to translate the Bible, <laughs> and it's fascinating because up until this point, you know, for a thousand years, a millennium, the church used. Jerome's Latin Vulgate, which the people couldn't understand. Only the clergy was were taught Latin. And what Wycliffe wanted to do is take that translation and retranslate into English for the English-speaking people, uh, which was unheard of except for in small areas of France up to that point that uh, Latin was the clerical language. You can't translate the Bible in any other language. Um, but he did. So he, he he very much followed the footsteps of Waldo, Peter Waldo. Yeah. Um, and uh, had a desire for the people to know the Bible in their own language. Now, Wycliffe was in England, and he was an Oxford don. He taught at Oxford, had a great deal of appreciation for academia. 
and so a scholar, but not a scholar necessarily in the in in, in the footsteps of the scholastics that we discussed last time. Yeah, we started to see a little bit of a trend away from scholasticism almost as quickly as as it came onto the scene, the height of it being with Aquinas, and then there were other thinkers right. who did not necessarily agree with the direction that scholasticism was taking. And it, it morphed, it, it changed and, and gave way to what would become the Renaissance. And on the literary or theological side of the Renaissance would be humanism. But here we are caught in between scholasticism and humanism, right in the middle. And it's um, a few decades after the church actually proclaimed it illegal to preach the gospel, preach the word of God to the people in a language that they can understand. Yes, and uh, in fact, in 1229, the French Council of Toulouse forbade the laity to read the Bible. To read the Bible! And Wycliffe was going as hard as he could in another direction. Um, and Wycliffe, uh, there are just a number of things about this man. Uh, because of his opposition to the church's uh, desire for the scriptures to remain only in the hands of the, the church leaders. Um, the church, of course, didn't appreciate that, but the king of England did, at least for a time. He appreciated. Yeah, you, you, think, you would think just the people, but it's not just the people. It was the king because along with the word comes power. Yes. And if you undermine the pope's power, more power swings to, to the, the king. king. Right. So... Uh, Initially, and it seems to be a pattern with a lot of these forerunners, these yes. reformers, that they gain a lot of support initially from the people. And Simply even by opposing the papacy. Papacy. And then um, there are some other things that he ab- opposed. And, and as a professor, he was walking a, a rope, a tight rope here, that he can only do so much in the public life uh, which he did. Uh, and then he saw more of a calling, more of benefit by removing himself from public life in order to uh, devote that time to, to the missions work, which we'll see with the translation. But some of those things that uh, he not only opposed doctrinally in the church, but he supported biblical doctrine, uh, it should sound very similar with the transubstantiation, um, the sacraments. He, he said salvation was by faith alone, and that you could not work for your salvation through taking the sacraments. Um, predestination, he understood that God works sovereignly in the people that uh, he draws to himself, and he believed in preaching. Again, very unorthodox when it came to the, the church worldwide in, in the West at that point, where there were only priests who gave homilies in Latin, and here we are with Wycliffe following in the footsteps of Waldo, preaching the word to people in their own language that they can understand and then apply. Uh, Wycliffe developed his idea of the doctrine of dominion. Um, he uh, said that the, that the church should look after its affairs, the state should look after its affairs. And he also went so far as to say, now we would disagree with this entirely, 
that if there is an unjust ruler in the church, he should be deposed by the state. Well, no wonder the king of England liked that. Uh, because that, again, like you say, it gave the king of England authority. But this belief went a long way toward justifying the 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 thoughts and actions of the patriots in our own country, their, their justification for the American War of Independence may have well started with Wycliffe, where it got a huge boost from Wycliffe, who said church and state need to be separated. He, all, he, he didn't stop, though, by saying the state should just oppose unjust church leaders. He said any unjust leaders should be opposed. So eventually the king of England didn't appreciate that. Yeah, that, that's when he started getting annoyed with, uh, or the king got annoyed with him, is that not only should you rebel against uh, the immoral, immorality of, of the church, but you should oppose the immorality of, of any leader, and that would include the, the king, that the king also falls under the law of God. Yeah. So it was a short, rather short uh, love affair between yeah. king and Wycliffe. Um, his followers would come to be called the Lollards because of their preaching. W- Wycliffe translates the Vulgate into English, and they begin to preach. And it's sort of a mocking term. Yeah, a, a lot of these movements, when they get their names, they're not names, terms of endearment. <laughs> no, they're, they're pejorative. <laughs> they're used in a derisive manner, just like Christian was right. originally. Uh, a scathing remark. Hey, you're a, you're a little Christ. Yes. And and here, followers of, of Wycliffe were called Lollards, and it's difficult to trace exactly the etymology of the word, but we think that it probably comes from the uh, almost like a onomatopoeia. Yeah, sound. You can say that where that his critics you, would have you said. You can say that. <laughs> his critics would have said, "Oh, your your followers, your preachers, they're they're all just going la 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 la." Because you think you can preach the word of God. Yes. And, and, uh, they did. And one of the, one of the, uh, arguments that rang rather hollow with, uh, uh, with, with Wycliffe was that he was the scholar to match any of the leaders mm-hmm. of the Church of Rome. So he met them on their own, uh, grounds to, at their, at their level and, and hung with them. And he didn't just stay there. He didn't stay where there was a gap between his level of scholarliness and, and the laity, he actually taught people to read, so there would eliminate the, the illiteracy. Yeah, more so Wycliffe than uh, Waldo that I mentioned earlier. He, he, he contributed not only to the uh, elevation of the place of the word in people's hearts and minds, but also to literacy. Mm-hmm. He was very concerned because how can you know the word if you can't read? Well, again, as uh, most reformers tend to do, they made enemies with the church as well as the state. And um, before the church could get a hold of him and end his life, he was actually became ill and, and died. But the church still wanted the last say. <laughs> that didn't stop him because <laughs> they they dug thirty years after he was dead and buried, dug up his bones, burned them, and scattered them into the Thames River. And uh, as we know, rivers flow downstream. So next we're going to move to the lower part of that stream. That's right. A little place of Bohemia, which we would know today as Czechoslovakia, was another John, John Hus, as we might know him in English, or Hus in the Bohemian. 
And in Bohemian, uh, hus means goose. And we'll see in just a few minutes towards the end of his life the role that his name played in his lasting legacy. Well, can you give us a little background or maybe the influences that Hus took in, in his impact? Well, we, we've already talked about one of the primary influences is Wycliffe. Uh, uh, Hus was a scholar as well as a priest. And so he appreciated very much the work of Wycliffe, who was not a priest, just a scholar. But Hus saw the great benefit of Wycliffe's work and his ideas, and he put Wycliffe's writings into check. Um, Hus, uh, like a number of these individuals that we talked about, did not appreciate many of the practices of the church, and he particularly spoke out against the uh, practice of indulgences. Mm-hmm. And to attack indulgences was to in, attack the revenue of the church. The church, and particularly, needed money right now because they were fighting this uh, rogue papacy, the Avignon papacy, and papacy. And so, um, Hus, when Hus is saying, you should not make people think that if they give money, they can get X number of years out of purgatory, or this is the way they buy their way into heaven. I mean, the priest, all they did was just put take this idea of buying your way into power and put it into these indulgences. Now you can buy your way uh, out of purgatory or into heaven. And this would become one of the primary reasons that the Reformation was successful because of the damnable practice of selling indulgences. Um, so, as would really be expected, especially from this point of view, as we're looking down from the past, Huss was excommunicated. And and not just excommunicated. Again, he made he not only opposed the church, but he opposed how they earned their revenue. And uh, that garnered him some attention, some unwanted attention. Although he had the uh, support of the people, um, and the, he had, was actually given an opportunity, he thought, to defend his theology uh, in, in front of the Pope or the Pope's uh, appointees, and he was given safe passage uh, in order to do this. Well, he was promised safe passage, <laughs> same as, as given, but in his mind. He was given safe passage to the appointment, and then after... Uh, after the church heard his arguments, they decided that promises are not, there are no yes. promises to a heretic. So if they deem him a heretic, they did not need to give him safe passage from the appointed place and time. So they arrested him. Um, I can't remember if he was tortured, but... Oh, when... he was horribly mistreated in prison. And... While he was in prison, though, his followers began to offer communion to the to the people. Uh, because what did the church do? They said, "Okay, if this whole town again fighting the the papal war, they were um, they did not want to spend the money on fighting this other little reforming war, but they got to the point where all of Bohemia was seen as an enemy of the the, the yes. church." At, at, because especially because after Huss was was burned at the stake, uh, he was given as most of these guys were, 
he was given multiple opportunities to recant, repent. The church really didn't want these these men to, to, to be executed they because it would have given them far greater authority if yeah. these who opposed them said, you're right and I will, and it would just be a lesson to everyone. So they thought, we'll teach them a lesson, and after three days uh, of just bullying, intimidation at the highest level, uh, they burned Huss at the stake who said, I shall die with joy today in the faith of the gospel which I have preached. And Jerome, one of his followers, would take up the cause at a very high level and would be martyred within a year. And so the Bohemians were outraged and violently opposed these actions, and that's when they became, as a as a country, the enemy of the church. And there ensued what's called the Hussite Wars, where there was actually war between Bohemia and, and the church, and they actually took the the, um, the war efforts, advanced it into Germany. Yeah, actually. after uh, the, the, the church realized they had bitten off more than they, they could chew. It's and, amazing, though, the, the staunchness of, the, of his followers, not only to bear arms in, in defense, and you can argue... You know, where you should fall down on that. But as you mentioned earlier, they were serving communion to one another at a point in which the church put an interdiction. And an interdiction we may have read or heard before, but it's not something that we've talked about here. And that's when uh, the Pope, by decree of the Pope, they stopped serving the bread. And again, that's, that's all the people ex- were receiving at that point was just the bread and not the wine. Uh, so they stopped serving it. And again, as laity, you've got to trust what your priest says. And the priest says, you've got to receive this in order to merit salvation. So no contradiction, no communion, no salvation. Yes. And here they are saying, no, faith equals salvation. And we as believers are going to give and receive communion, both the bread and the wine, in remembrance of what Christ did for us. And yet, it's it's very characteristic of these forerunners of the Reformation that they emphasize the preaching of the word above mm. the taking, the receiving of sacraments. They recognize the importance of sacraments, but not for salvation. They realize that salvation is in the gospel. So mm-hmm. here are this this very dark time which we look back in the church and we say, ah, there's not much going on. There was a lot going on. And these guys, uh, the, the, the men that we have, have talked about, Waldo and Wycliffe and Huss and Jerome and others, uh, their legacies impacted greatly the hearts and minds of the people of the 15th century. Well, uh, uh, another reason that... that that the people as a whole were ready to receive uh, the teachings of the reformers, who, by the way, is we'll, we'll talk about this in detail next next semester. These, guys, these men did not want to overthrow the church. They didn't, even, they didn't want to break from the church. They wanted the church to be reformed. Reform it from within. And, and so they were able to get their message out because of, an important event that happened or actually an advance, an invention 
in the middle of the 15th century, 1450 to be exact, was when Gutenberg gave us the printing press. I think it's interesting that when historians at the turn of the century, uh, which was also the turn of the millennium, moving into the third millennium since Christ, mm-hmm. uh, they looked back and they said, what was the most important advancement in the 20th century? They said Gutenberg's printing press. Overwhelmingly, that was considered the most important advancement. Now, why, Neil, would the printing press be placed above combustible engine and so many other, I mean, we could get in a plane, we could be in Czechoslovakia in eight hours, you know, <laughs> yeah. 10 hours max if, if we're starting in, in New York. Why is that, why was that so important? Major changes and advances, and we might could put the internet up there too. But well, we do now, yes. But we don't have the internet without the printed word. Exactly. And and what Gutenberg gave us is a total transformation of communication. And the way information is disseminated. Yeah, uh, multiple copies can be made and distributed quickly, which we'll see next semester how that played into God's working of the, the Reformation. Um, dissemination of information w- was totally radical, radicalized. From that day forward, it would never be the same. And relatively inexpensively mm. as well. In fact, uh, this is how much of the Reformation advanced was because of the back and forth pamphlets that were mm. written by Luther and Erasmus and Calvin and all the different people who wanted to speak to the issues of the day. And the masses read these pamphlets at having become literate, more increasingly literate, and uh, were impacted by the printed word, which pointed to the written word of God. In fact, what was Gutenberg's first, uh, his first mass? Uh, it, it was It was scripture. It was. His first mass printing was scripture. And uh, when we look at this whole era, we want to look at well, what are some takeaways um, from what we can learn from Waldo, Savonarola, Wycliffe, Huss, uh, and even Gutenberg. And there was another, um, Desiderius Erasmus, who we'll hit on more next semester when we talk, talk about the Reformation, because he overlaps with the Reformation. But uh, he was also seen as a, a bit of a forerunner, too, because he was probably the preeminent humanist at that time and humanist takes on a different connotation than than we put on it yes. now um, but all, all these guys these heirs these movements what did they do for the church uh, i think if i could toss one out that we see god's sovereign hand he continues to retain a remnant for himself that though the gospel was overshadowed during the middle ages it was never completely lost it, his word cannot be suppressed no and furthermore his word will change men's Mm. and women's hearts and that change would lead to reformation in the church our heritage is so rich and when we convene again next august we are going to be blessed beyond measure as we see how god radically reformed the true church it was a break from the human church, the human institution. But 
it was the true church that would find its place in the kingdom. And hopefully we'll see you then next time, next semester, where we're going to talk about a swan. And swan doesn't make much sense unless you know John Hus, the goose, who said uh, on his way to being um, burned Burned at the the stake, you may cook this goose, but there's coming a swan that you cannot ignore. So, well, that was a hundred years later. We know he didn't know him. But he knew that God would raise up Mm. the swan. Well, I want to just encourage you, if you are watching this film, uh, next semester we will be looking at the Reformation to the modern times. It won't, the class will not convene again until, uh, August, but take this time to review what you've learned, read maybe Gonzalez's book, his book one again, and then read book two. I just want to say a word about Gonzalez as well at, at this time. We've mentioned this before, but probably not as conservative as we would like for him to be. In fact, we talked about Peter Abelard last week. Uh, Abelard uh, was not, I, I, his doctrines were not Christian at all. And Gonzalez didn't really emphasize that. And that's a little troubling to me. Uh, so you want to read with discernment. Make sure you read with discernment. But if you want to go ahead and get book two and begin looking at this next uh, era, this from the, from 1517 to the present day, we'll get ready for 1517. But that all-important day that we have is our only day to remember, October 31st, 1517. Uh, we'll be getting to next year. Any closing thoughts, Neil? Well, I've certainly enjoyed it. Uh, I've continued to learn a lot going back <laughs> over this, and I hope everyone has. Uh, so hopefully, if you're watching this within the week frame, that we'll see you in person uh, next week. And for those listening in, uh, we hope you join us next semester. God bless.